0: I got to the point where I couldn't read any more poetry. I had to start writing poetry. It just started to come out of me, right? There's this moment when you've learned about how language has the power to change itself, if that's the right way to put it. So you can you can take words and play with them and explore their cultural values and in a poem, and if you can do that in a poem, you can do that in a song. You're listening to Speaking of Language, a podcast recorded at the Language Resource Center at Cornell University. Each week, we explore a topic related to language pedagogy and second language acquisition. This week, on Speaking of Language,
1: Sergio Pedro joins us from Ithaca College to discuss some of his favorite topics in language, literature, and music.
2: Welcome to a new episode of Speaking of Language. I'm Angelica Kramer, the director of the Language Resource Center at Cornell University.
1: And I'm Sam Lupowitz, the LRC's media manager. Today, Sergio Pedro is with us. Sergio is assistant professor in the Department of Modern Languages and Literatures at Ithaca College, Cornell's neighbor on the adjacent hill.
2: We will talk about topics from pronunciation to Miguel Cervantes, as well as his other life as a musician in the Ithaca area.
1: Welcome to Speaking of Language, Sergio.
0: Thank you. Nice to be here.
2: So we have a broad array of topics that we want to cover today. Um, before we jump in, though, can you please share a little bit about your experience and your history with languages, what you do, all those things?
0: Sure. So um, I think I'm a mishmash of things where languages are concerned Uh It can probably be traced back to the fact that my parents immigrated to the States when I was a kid, and my native language is Portuguese. I was thrust into this English-speaking grammar school classroom where (laughs) no one spoke a word of the language that I knew. So um, that experience led me down this path of an interest in the the ways in which language and culture intersect. English felt different. You know, it almost tasted different Mm. in my mouth when I spoke. And uh, eventually down the path of of literature and linguistics and everything that language is. So it's always been fascinating to me from day one.
2: One of the courses that you teach at Ithaca College is Introduction to Linguistics, in which you often posit that we don't say the things we think we say. How so and why do you think that is the case?
0: So... There are a few reasons for that. The, the the way that languages actually work with pronunciation is that we have a series of um, of the way we organize sound in our minds. So we think the word hot, for example, has three sounds. Huh, oh, and T, right? Mm-hmm. Only we often just say hot. I didn't say T at the end, right? I said hot, not hot. Um, the word utmost is another one like that. There's no T. No one says utmost, right? Um, there are other situations where we may think we have a T and we don't have one. T is a great example. There are other letters that work this way, but say truck. If you say tuck, chuck, and truck, you'll find the truck sounds a lot more like chuck. The sound that you make at the beginning of truck. Uh, boy, there are many like this. I'll give you one more and I'll stop there. <laughs> uh, so the beginning of the word drama sounds more like judge than it does like dom dominant for to keep the a ah sound. Mm-hmm. There's no duh in drama. There's a ja, drama like that. Right. Um, but we categorize sound differently than we actually say it. And one of the, the, One of a fun trick to do in language classes is to get English students to recognize what they're actually saying in English before they learn to say it in Spanish. So they Mm -hmm. don't, I don't know if there's a DR sound, they get the dr out of the way or there's a TR sound. They get the tr out of the way. So they don't say trabajo for, for trabajo Mm -hmm, in Spanish. Just a little trick to keep people on their toes. You know, to me, that's fun. It's fun to think about, um, how language is organized mentally and how different that is from what we
2: actually say. Yeah. Have you noticed a lot of differences in English and Spanish or Portuguese?
0: With regard to that? Yes. I think English is a worse offender. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't mean to, I don't mean to put it to, you know, it's not, it's not a bad thing to have that, but it is uh, English is less, correlates less uh, in terms of what we say correlates less to how we think we say Yeah. It. Than yeah. it does in
2: other languages. Yeah, yeah you know, I, mean, I, I remember when I learned um, English, I think a lot of the homophones, it's just insane, you know? And if you, for me, it was always really important to have the written word alongside the, the spoken version. I mean, that, right. that certainly helped me in that regard. But yeah, language is a fascinating thing.
1: I'm sure you get regional dialects that make that diverge even more, um, but is that something that you see sort of consistently, or, or does it, again, is that language-dependent or or region-dependent?
0: So different languages vary. The dialects of the languages vary in different ways. In English, mm-hmm. most dialects vary by um, vowels. So someone in New York might say oil, and someone in Texas, I'm going to botch this, might say all or something <laughs> of the sort. Yeah. Right. Uh, and, and the rest of the country might say something in between that. Um, uh, whereas, actually, in Spanish, the dialects vary by the way the consonants are pronounced. All Spanish dialects have five vowels. It's always a, a e, i, o, u. Those are the only five vowels ever, ever. So, Whereas, say, Spain might say, Yo estoy bien, for I am fine. Uh, Argentina might say, yo estoy bien, the je changes. So it goes from ya ja to je, and then in the, in the Caribbean, it might be jo. So that there's a consonant change, right? Mm-hmm. English does vary with our pronunciation. Um, yes. Probably <laughs> managed to, to figure out, why. so the Irish will have a lot more ours in their in their pronunciation, and than, than, say Queen Elizabeth would have right? <laughs> water and water, right? Mm-hmm. That kind of thing. And same thing in the U.S. Oh, uh, a note about English dialectology: the places in the U.S. that say that don't say the R at the end of water, for example. Um, those are immigrants that came from the south of England, where the R is not pronounced, mm-hmm. and those. Midwest accents that have the R nice and solid in there; those came later. Those are the Irish and the Scottish from the, the from elsewhere in the British Isles who have a nice, healthy R. The, the way that we pronounce R's or don't pronounce them in this country can be traced right to England. Hmm. Who do, and those who don't there. And those things; those things are kept alive in dialects.
2: Yeah. Right? Oh.
1: Your academic interests include Spanish Golden Age literature, uh, particularly Miguel Cervantes. Uh, I know from my time at Ithaca College that your enthusiasm for Don Quixote in particular is infectious. Uh, Where does your fascination with Cervantes come from, and what does his work have to offer us today?
0: So I'm fascinated with this encounter between—I'm going to say spectator. This could be a reader. You could be reading a poem, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm someone looking at a painting, someone watching a movie, whatever the the art form is, this encounter between spectator and art form. And Cervantes is a master at blurring the distinction between the world you're in as a reader and the world that Don Quixote is in and forgetting that those are two different worlds. And so he mediates that, that encounter really, really well. Um, I don't want to get into literary criticism here, but to keep things on... In, in, in simple terms, he has Don Quixote travel throughout real places in real Spain, right? So his trajectory, people have made maps of right, where Don Quixote his adventures took him, right? There, you can find them online. And there's a moment, for example, where Sancho runs into, in the second part of Don Quixote, so he has two books, um, part one and part two, Sancho, Don Quixote's trusty squire, is in a conversation with people who have read part one of the Quixote. So if you think about this, (laughs) um, you have a character talking to characters who have read about him in a novel published Mm -hmm. about him, right? So this blurring between the real world and the world of the, of the novel is, is if you're not paying attention, you forget that that's, that's a, that's not, that's a fictional world you're reading about. That's not the real world, right? So it, it makes it interesting to think about this in terms of how crazy really is Don Quixote, because he asks, or he, he claims the whole time that there's a, 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 a magician, a wizard, playing with his mind, not letting him see Dulcinea for who she really is, making him think she's this, this country lass who smells of garlic and doesn't look anything like he imagines her to be, right? So it... it, uh, it Put some questions in your mind about what's really going on in the novel. And Cervantes is a master at that. Nothing is ever the way it looks. It's why I really like reading him. If the, maybe I could put it up this way. If the, the purpose of art is to make you question, to make you wonder, to make you think what twice about what you believe or what you think is real or what you think you believe, then Cervantes never will let you rest. Right. You always have to be on your toes when you're reading him. And that's probably the thing I admire the most and I enjoy the most about about reading him. I like to make to be made to feel uncomfortable. Like I don't have it all down. Mm. That's a good thing for me. Yeah. So Cervantes is, yeah, I maybe my favorite author of all time for that reason. Mm. Um, but I have you know, there are other things that are great about art. So I'm also a big Tolkien fan. Yeah. Uh-huh. I, I can read for fun as you know, along with the best of them. I mean, Tolkien's just a master of cadence. You read his. His language flows so smoothly; it's just a pleasure to read, right? Yeah. It's Also, it can be fun just because it's fun. That's also good. We had we
1: had an episode, oh, what, maybe a year ago now, um, with uh, where we spoke with some PhD candidates at Cornell who created an alien language for one of the Marvel films that came out in the last couple of years. Uh, and it was interesting speaking with them because that's, you know, that what their their main focus is. How do you create a language from scratch? And, and they have to say, yeah, whenever you tell someone you do that, the first thing that always comes up is Tolkien. Um, and we did read Tolkien, but that's not the
0: only. <laughs> right, yeah, he's not the only. It's right? so Star Trek had Klingon, and that's so true, right. Yeah. Uh,
2: uh, and now you can learn all those languages on various apps. Isn't yep. that crazy?
0: One of the most interesting, some of the most interesting moments in interlinguistics is I have students do presentations and sometimes I get a student who knows Tolkien Elvish or knows Klingon and I'm like, you have to present on that. That's a rule. You have to be yeah, just yeah. Klingon. That's your job.
2: Yeah. Nice. <laughs> it's fun stuff. So it's very apparent that you have a broad spectrum of interests. And we promise to also talk a little bit about music. So you are active in the local music scene. How did that all get started? Where was your start as a musician?
0: Um I think my start as a musician was when I, just in, I decided in sixth grade that I would do my homework with the radio on. Hmm. Right? And I still remember, this is like a long time ago, late seventies. So we're talking the stuff on the radio was like Neil Young and Deep Purple and early eh. or seventies classic rock as you might imagine. And I began to really, really like this music. And then I remember this moment, uh, seemingly unrelated. I don't know if it was related or not, but so this may not seem related at first, but I promise it is. <laughs> my, my my parents I had a friend who was who was my dad's boss here in the States. My dad's boss built a house in our hometown in Portugal. Huh. So we went to visit. My mom and I went to visit. The house was like they had just moved in. It wasn't even fully furnished yet. And sitting in the corner in the living room was their son's guitar. It was an acoustic guitar sitting there. My mother and my my, my dad's boss's wife went throughout the house talking and I never like lost sight of that guitar huh. 12 years old. And I sat there and started stared at that thing. And I'm like, for the next two years, I want a guitar. I want a guitar. I want a guitar. I want a guitar. Finally, my aunt took pity on me to bop, this like cheap 20 buck guitar that, yeah. that that's what I had until I was old enough to afford my own and and, get nice. and whatnot. But it was always there. It seemed like it was always a calling. I wanted to play. Mm-hmm. And when I finally learned to play and I started to jam with other people, to me, that was heaven. Like, like that I could sit in a room with a guitar or a bass in my hand and we could make music and it would sound good. Um, I never I never looked back. It's always been nice, really, really awesome experience. So that's how I got started, sort of, kind of. <laughs> I, I I played guitar for the longest time, and then the first time I played in a band, I actually played bass. They were looking for a bass player, and I'm like, I could try bass. Why not? <laughs>
1: I feel like that's the story of how many bass players, Gusta. <laughs> <laughs> You've talked about how your experience has allowed you to to live in two cultural linguistic worlds, um, and has that affected your life as a musician and an artist? How How has that influenced you or benefited you?
0: I I think that that question has two answers. It's about how being in academia affects my day-to-day life. And then it's also about how being among musicians, uh, sometimes some of whom never went to college, right? Mm -hmm. uh, Still allows me to connect with people and what, what that brings back to academia. So first things first. Um, The second one is easier to answer. So when I, when I'm teaching linguistics and we talk about dialectology, um, so if, if I ask someone, how are you doing, right, there there are people who would answer, I'm doing good, and there are people who would answer, I'm doing well, right? And we all have this, all three of us, I can promise you, by looking at the two of you, I can tell, all three of us have this notion that I'm doing well is the right way to say it, right? Yeah, that's what we're supposed to say, <laughs> right? Only the reality is that people, many people, say I'm doing good. Yeah. So what what determines that I'm doing well is the right way to say it. And if you think about it, and you, you're welcome to disagree. In fact, I'm, I'd like to be challenged on this. <laughs> so, but in my opinion, what determines that I'm doing well is the right way to say it is the fact that for the longest time. The people who got to go to college and write grammar books and, and, and linguistic encyclopedias and, and whatnot, and the books that we teach and learn from, were white males who were affluent and said, I'm doing well. Their dialect was the predominant dialect. Mm. So if, if the people who got to do that were um, people from you know, the middle or the lower class in Brooklyn or the, uh, the Appalachian Hills or, or Black English, then we'd be using double negatives on a regular basis and that would yeah. be correct. Right, so th- this is just accidental that we happen to think this is the correct way to speak. Right, um, I'll I'll stay away from the political uh, uh, repercussions of that. You know, <laughs> what that might mean for for stigmatizing dialects and, and the like, but you know, you know,
2: I wish I could challenge you, but I am afraid I agree. <laughs> <laughs>
1: It was, you know, it's and it's funny for me. That's a a concept that I had to get my head around, and that I I have come to understand and agree with, but was not how I was raised. My mom was the one who was very uh, attentive to how we mm-hmm. would speak. The first one in her family to go to college, so it was this very, you know, it was this this. Uh, meritocracy this climbing the ladder thing that that motivated that um and so to remove the sense of superiority from uh my knowledge of the language was a a reckoning that i had to go through
0: yeah i did too i did too yeah i i was convinced when I was eighteen, that I was smarter than a lot of other people because I spoke better English than they did. I was the <laughs> narrative that had a drop. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so that was a, I said that there was a two part answer. Um, how does my being an academic influence uh, my artistic? That's actually that's an easy answer too. So, you know, for my when I. Got my PhD for my orals. I had to read lots of poetry. There were probably thirty or forty authors that were poets, um, and there were th- there were this like maybe this three or four months span that all I did was read poetry. I um, got to the point where I couldn't read any more poetry. I had to start writing poetry. It just mm-hmm. started to come out of me. Right. Mm-hmm. So there's this moment when you become indoctrinated into the, and you, you, you learn about how language has the power to change itself, if that's the right way to put it. So you can, you can take words and play with them and explore their cultural values in, in a poem. And if you can do that on poem, you can do that in a song, right? You can play with words and with what they mean. You can create, Moments that are lighthearted, you can create moments that are emotionally heavy, you can just play with words for the fun of it. Fish would do this, right? Fish might just play with, with, with some lyrics to make them fun, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's, um, I'm, I, I feel blessed that I have that, that I can sit and write lyrics and, and go in whatever direction the song happens to feel for me. And have the have the words come out
2: yeah. do you write in multiple languages or is english mostly what you write in
0: so uh yes to both of those <laughs> 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 I write mostly mostly in english but i have also written i have written in portuguese and spanish as well
2: okay yeah. cool yeah. so before we sign off we would like to ask you to share your favorite word with us in a language that you love, that you speak, that you want to learn. What's that favorite word?
0: Okay, so um, I- I'm really, really glad that Sam told me ahead of time that you were going to ask me this
2: question. <laughs> I had
0: time to think about it. Right? Yes. This is sort of like asking you, Sam. What's your favorite song? Right? Ooh, yeah. Like, yeah. Like how do you How do you answer that question? But I I came up with a good one that I think I like, so I'm going to go with it. Um, it has an equivalent in English. Uh, the word is baroque in English. It's barroco in Portuguese, and I'm going with the Portuguese word for a reason. Um. So the baroque is this era that explores. Um. Darkness, uncomfortable themes. Uh, if you know the work of Caravaggio, the the Italian painter, his stuff is all dark and gloomy. Um, there's a Spanish poet by the name of Quevedo who writes like his poetry has four letter words, cuss words in it. It's the, the idea that making the making this the the, the, the spectator again uncomfortable is okay. Mm-hmm. In fact, that's a good thing to do to challenge whatever whatever comfort zone that spectator is in, you want to challenge that, right? Um, So the Baroque embodies that, and I like that um, in an artistic movement. But the interesting thing about this word is that its origin is somewhat disputed. Nobody really knows how it got started or where it came from. Um, There are a few different theories. One of the theories, and it's not necessarily the right one, but one of the theories is that it came from the Portuguese for... A distorted pearl. Hmm. So a pearl that's that's imperfect. That's kind of you know mm-hmm. look, right? So given the mystery behind the word, we don't really know where it comes from where it comes from and then the movement that it came to represent. Uh, I think I like that word. It's an interesting word. Nice. That's my story, I'm sticking with it. My word is
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> sounds good. Well, thanks so much for speaking of language with us,
0: Sergio. Oh, yeah. My pleasure. Uh, Thank you for inviting me. This has been fun. It's been a blast.
2: Next week, you'll hear from Rachel Beatty-Riedel, the new director of Cornell's Mario Einaudi Center for International Studies and professor in the Department of Government.
1: We will talk about the new Migrations Initiative and other events and programs at the Einaudi Center. Until then, auf Wiederhören.
0: The Language Resource Center is located on the ground floor of Stimson Hall on Cornell's main campus in Ithaca, New York. Check us out on the web at lrc.cornell.edu or look for Cornell LRC on Facebook and Twitter.
2: Speaking of Language is produced by Angelica Kramer and Sam Lupowitz.
1: Recorded by Sam Lupowitz. Original music by Sam Lupowitz,
0: Dan Gable, and Joe Gibson.
2: Thanks also to the College of Arts and Sciences at Cornell University.
1: As a reminder, the ideas and opinions expressed on this podcast do not reflect those of the College of Arts and Sciences or any other official entity of Cornell
0: University. We thank our listeners and do stay tuned for our next episode.